Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, trips that you plan for the next whole week. Bands too long for so cheap and your flex so deep, sex so deep. You got it, girl, you got it. In 2019, Chris Brown and Drake released their single, No Guidance. Now, when this song dropped, it immediately raised the eyebrows of some critics for legitimate reasons. I mean, let's not forget, Drake had been romantically linked to Rihanna. And here he was doing a song with Chris Brown, who physically assaulted Rihanna back in 2009. But if you remember what 2019 was like for hip-hop, you might also remember that No Guidance pretty much owned that summer. You've got Drake hitting us off the top with his usual R&B croon, Chris Brown taking over with his signature high-energy tenor for the second and third verses, and Drake returning to close things out with a smooth 24-bar rap-sung verse. All in all, no guidance is what any hip-hop kid coming out today might call a normal, run-of-the-mill pop song. A hit, but nothing special. And they wouldn't be wrong either. This is what normal sounds like today. A blurred meshing of rapping and singing rooted in hip-hop and R&B sensibilities. But it wasn't always like that. What I mean is that while it might be a fair assumption to think that the 2020 hip-hop kid into Drake or Future or Lil Uzi Vert might also be into Chris Brown, Bryson Tiller, or Summer Walker, the 80s hip-hop kid that was down with Run DMC, Rakim, I'm picturing them rocking out to Boogie Down Productions' classic ode to the birthplace of hip-hop, the South Bronx. South Bronx! That 80s hip-hop kid probably wasn't also bumping Whitney Houston or Shaka Khan or hitting rewind on Anita Baker's debut hit single, Sweet Love. Or at least it wasn't considered cool to be a fan of both. Because the reality is, back then, for the most part, rap fans were over here, and R&B fans were over there. In fact, the story of rap's rise to becoming the dominant pop sound it is today started with rap being the underdog. Not just in the eyes of pop's predominantly white mainstream gatekeepers, but in the eyes of many in the R&B establishment too. So how did we go from that to a time now when a hip-hop artist could pop on a record with an R&B act, rap a verse, sing another one, and be arguably the more successful singer than the R&B singer themselves? That's what we're about to dig into. This is not a Drake podcast. A limited-run series about Drake, but not really. I'm your host, Ty Harper. In this episode, we look at rap's journey to pop dominance through the lens of its long, complicated relationship with R&B and the commercial mainstream. 
And to do that, we begin once again in New York, where hip hop started. You know, when you think about when hip hop first emerged, you know, let's go to August 1973. Mark Anthony Neal is a professor of black pop culture at Duke University. He's also born and raised in the Bronx, the birthplace of hip hop. Definitely by the time it begins to hit the radio airwaves in the late 70s and early 1980s, you know, you're at a point in a period of time where, you know, it's what, 16, 17 years after the March on Washington. You know, King's been dead for 15 years. We have started to see these kind of legal boundaries um, that separated black Americans from success, from the mainstream, from middle class aspiration, you know, begin to disappear. Right. You had the first real generation of black kids who are educated in predominantly white colleges and universities. And at least the music begins to represent this kind of aspirational view of black America. You know, being in the early 1980s, I mean, it is just the sound of success, right? It is the sound of crossover success. And what folks heard when they heard hip hop were the folks who were left behind. And in particular, they heard young folks who were left behind, left behind in the ghetto, who might not have been able yet to make that transition. And I think many middle class black listeners were resistant to those sounds. The older establishment, the R&B people, the jazz people of the world, did not respect hip hop at all. That's Kwame Holland. And if you're a student of hip hop's golden age, you probably know him as the rapper, producer, and self-proclaimed boy genius, Kwame. It was just looked at as something that ghetto kids did in the street, something that had no merit, no musicality, and they were voicing this opinion. In the late 80s, Kwame came on the scene with hits like his Billboard number one rap single, The Rhythm. Well, I came here for something funky to happen. It's this Christmas because everybody's rapping. Back then, Kwame was a hip-hop star on the rise and saw firsthand how the genre was being received. You know, like, I remember Prince, for example, saying the only good rapper is a dead rapper. Riding in my Thunderbird on the freeway, I turned on my radio to hear some music playing. I got a silly rapper talking silly shit. That's Dead On off Prince's Black album. And while Prince, as we know, eventually came to respect the merits of rap music, in the beginning, rap simply was not received with open arms by many in the black music establishment. But whether you were a singer belting out that polished, black, aspirational R&B, or the voice of a new hip-hop sound coming out of the streets of New York, in the 80s, there was really only one clear path to being heard by the masses, and that was commercial radio. Black folks, if they wanted to be treated fairly in the media, they had to own media. And that was kind of the inspiration behind inner city broadcasting and WBLS. WBLS in New York. Stereo in black. Where you hear Carmen McCray, Johnny Hart, Smokey Robinson, Billy King, Aretha Frank, Bobby Inner city broadcasting was founded in the late 60s and early 70s by a guy by the name of Percy Sutton, um, who also, among other things, was the first black borough president in, in the borough of Manhattan. He was also Malcolm X's legal counsel. And, you know, what happened when the station began to have some real success in the 1970s, right? There's a period of time where it's the number one station in New York City, basically playing black music. And, and all of the other pop stations had to kind of fall in line and, and you know, integrate, you know, their, their playlist in order to compete. WBLS, the total black experience in sound. 
But it wasn't just WBLS's music mix that gave them their cultural pole position. Ladies and gentlemen. It was also thanks to the vision of one disc jockey. We are seven acknowledged wonders of the world. You are about to be entertained by the eighth. Whose whole broadcasting style and programming approach made him one of the most important voices of that era. It's the Frankie Crocker Show. Do it, Frankie. Do it, do it. <sighs> Suck it to me, mama. Frankie Crocker was the, I would argue, the most influential DJ, radio DJ in New York City in the 1970s. If you don't dig it, you know you've got a hole in your soul. Don't eat chicken on Sunday. Push, girl. He famously would end every show. When Frankie Crocker isn't on your radio, your radio isn't really on. Take care. And- With a performance of King Pleasure's Moody's Mood for Love. There I go. That's literally how I first heard the song as a six or seven year old. It was an event. But he was also someone who circulated in the clubs. And, you know, the DJs recognized he was there. They would let him know what the hot sounds were going to be. So he also had the real power and capacity to break hits, you know, in ways that DJs almost never do anymore because they don't really exist. WBLS became a major institution in New York households including the homes of first-generation hip-hop kids like Kwame. My most vivid early hip-hop memory is hearing Rapper's Delight on WBLS. Now what you hear is not a test, I'm rapping to the beat. There was never a point from the first time hearing Rapper's Delight that I did not want to be a rapper. WBLS, along with rival KISS 98.7, would be two of the earliest FM commercial stations to add rap to their programming. And both took it a step further, hiring some of the most important radio DJs in hip-hop history. WBLS 107.5 in the class by itself. In 1982, WBLS hired Mr. Magic. Rocking Mr. Magic, I've got the mic, Marley Marl. And a young DJ named Marley Marl. Their show was called Mr. Magic's Rap Attack. Lesson three for the Marley Marl School for Better DJs. Let's go to work on BLS, y'all. And in 83, cool DJ Red Alert brought the hip hop flavor to Kiss FM. J Red Alerts is blowing it up. People were literally glued to the radio Friday night, Saturday night. They were glued. Like nothing happened between 9 p.m. and 12 a.m. because we were all at home taping these shows. But while WBLS and KISS FM were setting important precedents with their hip-hop programming, there was a catch, and it was a pretty big one. It was great that hip-hop was getting late-night love on two of the most influential stations in the country, but anyone who understood commercial radio knew that the most coveted time slots on the FM grid were between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. Why? Because that's when the masses tuned in. And those masses were what turned great songs into mainstream hits and promising acts into bankable household names. Mark Anthony Neal explains why most commercial stations didn't play rap music during their primetime slots. 
the radio stations themselves, black-owned radio stations at least, also had an investment to distinguish their sound from what was happening in the streets because they're also trying to challenge and be able to get advertising dollars to convince, you know, mainstream American corporations that they should spend their money on black radio and there's a black buying audience that's there. And hip-hop at that point in time didn't suggest that because, again, it's largely a youth music. Youth music in the ghetto, the folks who had disposable income weren't living in the hood anymore. They were listening to Teddy Pendergrass and Tina Marie and, and all these things at this point in time. You know, radio networks, they had by by 89, 90, they implemented this thing called the No Rap Workday. And the No Rap Workday was anytime between six o'clock. And this was a thing. They were like, you don't have to listen to this rap crap while you're at work. They basically said, we got to play rap because that's what the kids want. But from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. or or 7 p.m., we will not play rap. This was literally going on in most radio stations around the country. And while some rap artists would persevere and find other ways to become commercially viable, this left most rappers looking at different strategies to be heard on mainstream radio. And one of the first big examples of this came via one of R&B's most established divas at the time and one of hip-hop's most respected MCs of the early 80s. That's the legendary Melly Mel of the hip-hop group The Furious Five, spitting his rap game to Shaka Khan on her Grammy-winning platinum smash single, I Feel For You. a song written and originally recorded by Prince. In 1984, there were rappers who released way more important hip-hop records. Houdini put out the groundbreaking 12-inch for Friends with Five Minutes of Funk on the B-side. Tila Rock released It's Yours. And Roxanne Shante dropped Roxanne's Revenge and became one of the first women to blow up in rap. But the rap verse most of the world came to know best would be Melly Mel's on an R&B record, which spoke to the power of commercial radio at the time. Pop radio in 1983-84 is like wide open. And then I could argue that collaboration could have only happened in that particular moment where folks were trying so many different things aesthetically and bringing different people together. I think for a black hip hop artist, it was important because it showed a potential path that could go forward. And so for decades to come, especially in the 90s, the rap feature would be a standard strategy for R&B artists looking to add a bit of street edge to their brand. But more importantly, for hip hop artists trying to get themselves heard in the black pop mainstream and beyond. Whether it was Roxanne Shante on the Rick James single, Lucy's Rap, in 1988. Or one of my personal favorites, Rakim, on the remix to Jody Watley's single, Friends, in 89. And while the looks rappers were getting on these R&B singles were great, there were limits to that strategy as well. 
for one, these songs would be serviced to the music industry with different versions of said song. And so DJs would get extended and remix versions for the clubs and commercial radio programmers would get shorter versions. But get this, sometimes there would be a no rap version, which literally was a version that left out the rap feature. And it was these no rap versions that usually got the bulk of the airplay on commercial radio. And to make matters worse, these rap features didn't always make it onto the R&B singer's album. And rappers wouldn't see any of the spoils of the album sales if their features weren't on the album. But by the close of the 80s, another lane to more commercial exposure emerged, thanks to a new sound that seemed like a win-win for R&B singers and rappers looking to get ahead. They called it New Jack Swing. New Jack Swing was this melding of hip-hop production and aesthetic value with R&B singing and vocal techniques that really made it abundantly clear how compatible these two genres were. That's music journalist Brianna Younger. It becomes the, the blueprint for essentially almost every popular song we hear now that is kind of begging you to question whether it's hip-hop or R&B. I think that starts with New Jack Swing. And while New Jack Swing, its creator Teddy Riley, and Uptown Records, the label founded by the late Andre Harrell, who was primarily responsible for pushing the New Jack sound, are all deserving of their own podcasts, even big screen movies, what's important for the focus of this series is that New Jack Swing became a go-to formula that breathed new life into commercial R&B. Former New Edition member Bobby Brown became the self-proclaimed king of the genre thanks to smashes like Every Little Step, My Prerogative, and his first major solo pop smash, Don't Be Cruel. But on the other hand, New Jack Swing also gave rappers a clearer crossover path to black commercial radio and beyond. Think Heavy D's run of hits that not only included Somebody For Me and Is It Good To You, but also saw him secure features with established R&B acts. Most significantly, his appearance with Janet Jackson on the remix to her song All Right. Whatever happens, whatever may come, whatever may be, it's cool. I got a covered beloved from A to Z. And later with Janet's brother, Michael, on his single, Jam. Heavy D started do, doing New Jack Swing records with Teddy Riley. Big Daddy Kane went and did a New Jack Swing record with Teddy Riley. We started looking at it as, okay, now that's the most popular form of this hip-hop R&B thing that's going on. From that point, Teddy was the go-to guy to cross over. And Kwame himself would have one of his biggest hits as a rap artist during that whole New Jack Swing era with a song called Only You. You know, we've been together for some time and A song he produced himself, but initially was actually meant for another artist. The record was originally created for Vanessa Williams at the time with me as a feature. It didn't work out, so I just kept it for myself because I wanted to go against that quote-unquote no rap workday. So if I put 50% singing and 50% rapping, I have a 
higher chance, I have a 50% chance of being on the radio at six o'clock in the morning and not after six. And Kwame's gamble would pay off, giving him his second Billboard Top 40 R&B hit single and helping to solidify his fan base, a fan base that actually included the king of pop himself. Okay, on 57th Street in um, Fifth Avenue in New York, there used to be a store called the Warner Brothers store. It was all things Warner Brothers. And I'm a heavy toy collector. So I'm in the store shopping, and then I notice security guards flanking the store. And I'm like, what the hell is happening here? Then they wheel this guy in on a wheelchair with the coronavirus mask on and a hat. And he just starts pointing at things and people are grabbing what he's pointing to. And then I walk past him and he he stops me and I'm looking at him like, oh shit, Michael Jackson. He was like, you know, I'm a real big fan of your music. And I'm looking at him like, uh, yeah, 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 I like yours too. And I just leave, I just bounce. Kwame poses a, a way forward for R&B styled hip hop. Here's Mark Anthony Neal. It doesn't get fully realized the way Kwame first imagined it. Uh, on the one hand, because of, you know, the, the beginning influence of West Coast and NWA and Dr. Dre and, and, and that whole moment. But I think, you know, for me, there was a, something comfortable that was taking risk aesthetically, but was still hip hop and still very much R&B. Indeed, the growing popularity of N.W.A. and the harder-edged West Coast gangster rap sound, along with pushback to the New Jack Swing style from within the hip-hop establishment, would signal a grand opening and grand closing for New Jack Swing. And in good old hip-hop fashion, that seemingly anti-New Jack Swing sentiment would make it onto several classic releases from that era, including We Got the Jazz from A Tribe Called Quest, Strictly Hardcore Tracks, Not a New Jack Swing, and Ice Cube's legendary line on his song, The Wrong N-Word to Fuck With. It ain't no pop cause that sucks, and you can New Jack Swing Kwame himself would get his own share of criticism from within the rap establishment, most famously embodied in a line from the late Notorious B.I.G. on his song Unbelievable. Your life is played out like Kwame and the f***ing polka dots who rock the spot. Biggie, you know how the weed go unbelievable. Now at the time, Kwame would just shake it all off and keep it moving, but talking to him for this podcast, he had this to say about the whole New Jack Swing backlash. It wasn't necessarily against New Jack Swing. It was the copycats and the rappers who were known for their harder records jumping on New Jack Swing records to get ahead. That's where the backlash came from. And then it was more of a, your records are not getting played on the radio, but the Teddy Riley records are. So now you hate New Jack Swing. When everybody was getting played on the radio, we love New Jack Swing. It's like rappers hating trap now because everything is so trapped out. Kwame, we gonna take him back like polka dots. Kwame would eventually hang up the mic in the mid-90s to become a full-time producer, eventually working with the likes of Mary J. Blige, Lloyd Banks, and Tweet for her hit single with Missy Elliott, Turned the Lights Off in 2004. But not before having a hand in one of the biggest songs of the New Jack Swing era a song Kwame had no idea would have the impact it did. I was messing with some girl in L.A. and her brother, her brother knew every member of New Edition. And 
he was like, hey, you want to meet New Edition? I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> so we went to everybody's house. We first went to Ralph's house and me and Ralph got cool. And then we went to Ronnie, um, Ricky, and Mike. They were all in a house together. Everybody's playing Sega Genesis and just chilling out, you know, being, you know, young adults, teenagers. And Mike was like, I'm putting together a group with just me, Ronnie and Ricky. We're going to rap. We're going to sing. I'm like, it'll never work. <laughs> you kinda... So we were all going out to a club that night. So he picked us up and he plays Poison minus the raps. He's like, yo, I know somebody can come up with some raps for this. By the time we got to the club, I handed him a napkin. I was like, here goes your rhymes. Two verses. I wrote the verse that they actually kept and used was Ronnie's rhyme. Poison, deadly, moving in slow. Looking for a mellow fellow like the Vogue, getting paid. Late. You know, I wrote that. They used that whole thing. And that was it. That literally was it. Poison went on to become one of the biggest songs of 1990, and to this day, it's one of the most recognizable songs of the New Jack Swing era. The Poison album also went four times platinum, besting every release by Belle Biv DeVoe's original group, New Edition. The album also included production work from the Bomb Squad of Public Enemy fame, and would be an early blueprint for the fusion of rap and R&B we'd see expanded upon later by artists like Mary J. Blige and Jodeci. I mean, Belbiv DeVoe even came equipped with a catchy mission statement that quite literally articulated their genre fluidity. In BBD's mind, they were... And with that, Belle Biv DeVoe became a pivotal example of what blurring the lines between rap and R&B could look and sound like while selling millions and millions of records in the process. Which to me kind of begs the question, if a trio of formerly known as R&B singers could go platinum on the strength of their raps, what was stopping rappers from doing the same thing as singers? Hey, my name is Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. By the 90s, hip-hop was no longer the underdog it was in the 80s. Don't get me wrong, it was still an uphill battle, but it was clear that rap was here to stay and moving into the mainstream in a big way. Still, rappers hungry for the kind of commercial success that came with appealing to both hip-hop and R&B audiences the way BBD had were facing a new challenge. And that was getting the emotional vulnerability that came with singing to make sense within the context of hip-hop. Now, to be clear, rappers have been singing on their songs from the very beginning. I mean, one of the earliest examples was Kevy Kev on his 1983 rap classic, All Night Long. I come for free time, baby. 
But like Waterbed Kev on that song, rappers who sang back in the day usually did it with a playful tongue-in-cheek delivery. Think Slick Rick on basically every hit record he had. There always seemed to be a kind of ambivalence around a rapper singing like they meant it. Something you didn't see with Belle Biv DeVoe. Not that BBD were ever viewed as real MCs, but there was nothing coy about their rap delivery either. Here's Mark Anthony Neal with some thoughts on this. You know, there have been so many examples of rappers who sing, right? And, and there's always been a kind of earnestness to it, right? You know, Karis Wan sang. The bridge is over, the bridge is over. The bridge is over, the bridge is over. Hey, hey! Even if it was a kind of, you know, Jamaican-style sing-sing, we have the examples of most deaf singing on black on both sides. And, you know, Bismarcky sang. I mean, it's essentially what he does all throughout, you know, Just a Friend, even though it's done so in a way that's, that's jokingly. I actually think that ambivalence is not so much something that's internal to hip-hop as it was the external influence of hip-hop. I think about that great line that KRS-One has, you know, where he asks, are there any straight singers in R&B? Are there any straight singers in R&B? All I see is the light-skinned puppy trying hard to be Mr. Tuffy. And for a moment, think about the image of R&B in the mid-80s and late-80s, where they're all wearing jerry curls. (laughs) And some of them are singing with falsetto voices, right? One of the dichotomies that comes out of this kind of hip-hop and R&B tension, particularly around masculinity, is that hip-hop represented a kind of hard, hyper-masculinity, and R&B represented a soft masculinity, right? That's why Bobby Brown and, and that generation was so significant, right? Because they brought that hip-hop hardness, you know, to R&B, which was perceived as being soft. This ambivalence Mark Anthony Neal is articulating also speaks to the deeper issues around masculinity and homophobia that hip-hop and other male-dominated genres continue to struggle with. But he takes it a step further and also highlights the way female hip-hop artists are perceived within this realm of conversation. Lauryn Hill was a singer, is a singer. Uh, Queen Latifah is a singer, right? Missy Elliott is a singer. And even the ways that we talk about those artists, we tend not to think about them as hip-hop artists, but this kind of hybrid form, right? And, And it's not just about gender because no one thinks about MC Light as hybrid. Right. She, she's a hip hop artist, but she didn't sing. But for these women hip hop artists who could also sing, it's like we don't quite know how to categorize them because somehow the singing, you know, doesn't fit comfortably in the idea of what folks thought hip hop was at the time. Now, over the course of the 90s, we'd see plenty of other artists push the boundaries of what a rap act could do with singing. Whether we're talking Bone Thugs and Harmony's whole style as epitomized on their 96 mainstream hit The Crossroads or the earnest attempts at experimentation that came in the late 90s and early 2000s from rappers like Q-Tip and Andre 3000 via Outkast's multi-platinum selling Speaker Box Love Below Double album which included songs like Prototype, She Lives in My Lap, and of course, the Billboard topping single, Hey Ya. Yeah. So, so 
But while those artists were clearly pushing the boundaries of what a rapper who sang could sound like, they all had pretty singular visions. Visions few rap acts were able to incorporate into their own styles. And so the rapper with the R&B singer on the hook combo continued to be the default formula for most hip-hop artists trying to go pop. That was until a rapper from Jamaica, Queens, broke that mold just a little bit. Many men wish death upon me. Blood in my dog and I can't see. That's Many Men from 50 Cent's debut album, Get Rich or Die Trying, released in 2003. By this time, hip-hop, thanks in large part to Diddy and Bad Boy's shiny suit Jiggy era, was dominating the pop charts with the standard rapper-on-the-verse, singer-on-the-hook formula. But 50 helped usher in an era of East Coast-style gangster rap that centered around smooth-as-butter R&B hooks sung by 50 Cent himself. An approach 50 initially clowned another successful rapper for doing at the time, Ja Rule. The funniest thing to me about 50 was that 50 was singing just as much as Ja on all them records. The difference was 50 just had a lot more personality. Fonte Coleman is a member of the hip-hop group Little Brother. And aside from being regarded as one of the most respected MCs to come out of the early 2000s era, inspiring Drake himself, Fonte would also become known for his singing, most notably as one half of the Grammy award-winning group Foreign Exchange with producer Nicolay. Many men, that is a song about people trying to kill him <laughs> and he's singing it, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, you know, it was, it had a way of um, taking just these really dark and just tragic subjects and making them beautiful. He was someone that represented just kind of a traditional view of, of masculinity, just the manly man, just the muscular guy, the built dude, you know, the the tough guy. And so I think a lot of people saw, well, if 50 can sing and get away with it, then hell, the lane is all the way open. It really felt that way. And with the success of Get Rich or Die Trying, 50 had made a pretty strong case for rappers cutting out the R&B middleman or middlewoman and doing the singing themselves. Ironically, what put 50 on my radar like was his remake of Tainted on his mixtape when he was singing my part, but, but making it gangster. That's Grammy-nominated singer Dwele. And the remake he's referring to is 50 Cent's take on Slum Village's 2002 single, Tainted, which featured Dwele on the hook. Here's a bit of 50's version. After that, you know, that's when I heard Many Men. That's when I heard Wankster, Candy Shop. You know, and I'm like, oh, okay, he does this. And he's a rapper. He's killing it on the, on, on the lyrics, but... These hooks are magical. But Dwele takes his analysis of 50's secret singing sauce a step further and actually nails it down to one very unique but arguably overlooked ingredient. It was different, man. I mean, you know, he was he was singing with some buckshots in his face. <laughs> <laughs> you could not even seeing it, hearing it. You know what I'm saying? That's it. It's a candy shop. You know what I'm saying? Like nobody can purposely do that. That's what made him special. That's what made him stand out. 50's ability to help break the machismo stigma around rappers singing their own hooks would be another pivotal moment that helped push mainstream rap in the direction it's been going in to this day. 
but it wouldn't be a singer or a rapper responsible for the genre's next transformative moment. It would actually be a piece of technology. Auto-tune is a tool that is used to manipulate pitch. So if you're a singer and you're singing a little flat or a little sharp, Auto-tune is a software that you could use to literally tune your vocal and get it in perfect pitch. The earliest case I can remember hearing it was on Believe by Cher in 1999. Auto-tune was already a thing before Cher used it on Believe. It was usually used much more subtly and specifically to correct any imperfection in a singer's pitch. It eliminated the need for lots and lots of retakes, which in turn cut down the production time and costs for the singer and the record label. So that wobbly robotic effect we hear on Believe? Well, most singers and producers would have heard that and turned the auto-tune effect way the hell down. But Cher and her producers didn't. Instead, they embraced it. And here we are. I never would have guessed that Cher would have been the most influential hip-hop artist of all time. But I think we got to put her up there in the running. (laughs) There's no question Cher's vocal production on Believe had a major impact on pop culture moving forward. But when it comes to T-Pain, the rapper-turned-singer who actually popularized the use of auto-tune in the hip-hop world, he actually credits a different artist for the initial inspiration. That's the Dark Child remix of Jennifer Lopez's debut single, If You Have My Love. But whether it was Cher, J-Lo, or both, the bottom line is T-Pain, thanks to his auto-tuned vocals, became one of the winningest new acts of the late 2000s. And it started with his debut single, I'm Sprung, but things really took off for T-Pain with his first Billboard number one hit, Buy You a Drink. Pretty soon, T-Pain's auto-tuned vocals were the go-to hook for other artists' hit rap records, including DJ Khaled, Rick Ross, and Kanye West on his hit single, Good Life, which won T-Pain his first Grammy. And it was at this point that Kanye West himself decided to give auto-tune a go on his own voice, with pretty massive implications. I'm not loving you way I wanted to what I had to do had to run from you That's Love Lockdown from Kanye's 2008 album 808s and Heartbreak an album that featured Kanye rapping and singing exclusively with the auto-tune effect for the very first time and all with studio assistance from T-Pain and a newcomer by the name of Kid Cudi who'd been making waves that same year with his debut single, Day and Night. I always felt that Kanye was dealing with a particular level of pain and trauma that he was trying to recover from. And I thought that he didn't feel as though there was a space in mainstream hip-hop to really talk about his emotions without filtering it through auto-tune and this kind of distorted singing. He can't really sing. I mean, that's important. He couldn't 
sing straight. One, because he physically couldn't, but also because in the context of hip hop, you know, it wouldn't have worked for him at that time for what he needed. And so auditory allows him to kind of filter his emotions in ways that we accepted because we had accepted Auto 2 singing than the context of what hip-hop was at the time. The combination of T-Pain and Kid Cudi, who also brings the emotional lyricism and kind of just on its face, I am sad, I am heartbroken, I am depressed. And Kanye takes the combination of all of that and, of course, makes 808s and Heartbreak. And 808s and Heartbreak becomes this watershed moment where people still to this day point to, this is the moment everything changed. Because one, the man is extremely sad on this record. <laughs> He's just crying in autotune the whole time. And I think this is the moment when it kind of becomes a question of if Kanye is a rapper, but he's singing in autotune. Is this a rap record or is this... People would say an R&B record. I don't think any R&B head would think that was an R&B record. But I think in the public discourse, that then becomes this like underlying almost tension as to what now is this new frontier. Now, pretty much every rap act we've covered in this episode in some way helped to disrupt hip-hop's established notions of what rappers who sang could sound like. And Kanye West was no different. Except in his case, Kanye forced hip-hop to question why there wasn't space for auto-tuned rap acts to sing with unabashed angst and pain and to do it in a way that had little to do with perfect musicality and everything to do with our ideas of truth through emotionality. A truth that was meant to be more biting than Pitch Perfect. And so by 2009, Autotune wasn't just a T-Pain thing. It had the stamp of approval from Kanye West, one of hip-hop's most influential artists at the time. And Kanye wasn't the only established rap act co-signing it either. Little Wayne and Snoop Dogg were just a few of the other high-profile rap acts who embraced autotune. And pretty soon it was on every other rap record on the radio. Which is why it started to feel like autotune had officially moved into the house of commercial rap and was ready to be respected like the rest of its hip-hop-rooted furniture. But not everyone was ready for that. That's DOA, Death of Autotune, Jay-Z's first single off his 2009 album, The Blueprint 3. And for the anti-autotune hip-hop crowd, it was exactly what they needed to hear. This is anti-autotune, death for the ringtone. This ain't for iTunes, this ain't for sing-alongs. Is- now, on its release, Jay-Z made it pretty clear that DOA was not directed at T-Pain or Kanye, but at the feeling that autotune had become a crutch, a gimmick that was actually hurting hip-hop. And it was a sentiment many, including Fonte, agreed with. It just erases all individuality because they all sound the same. Mm-hmm. Like, the exact same, you know? You're, you're erasing any semblance of what your real voice sounds like, and that's the only thing you have. But if Jay-Z's plan was to kill rap's autotune fetish with DOA, it didn't work. 
Auto-Tune continued to dominate the mainstream rap landscape well into the 2010s with a slew of commercial hits by a whole new generation of artists that make up the commercial hip-hop world we're in right now. And while it might be convenient for some to dismiss this generation's use of Auto-Tune as the equivalent of pouring ketchup all willy-nilly over your french fries, the reality is many of these artists are applying auto-tune in ways that make it harder to argue that what they're doing is a gimmick. That's Tony Montana from Future, the Grammy Award-winning artist who helped pioneer what would be called mumble rap, which got its name because of the incoherent way in which the rappers associated with the term spit their rhymes. Case in point, Future's second verse on this very song, which many consider to be an early example of the mumble rap style. Future would be one of the key acts to rescue autotune from its gimmicky rap ways in the late 2000s, and like T-Pain before him, Future built a sound and brand that was distinctly his own. A sound that has made him one of the most commercially successful rap acts of the last decade. And there would be many other acts who helped make auto-tune and the rap singing style a central characteristic of hip-hop's new wave of commercially bankable artists. From the Migos and Lil Luzi Vert, to Rich Homie Quan, and more recently the late Juice World, whose 2018 hit Lucid Dreams became one of the most streamed songs on Spotify. I still see your shadows in my room, can't take back the love that I gave you. So where does Drake fit into all of this? Well, according to Mark Anthony Neal, Drake kind of doesn't. Autotune is an outer body experience, and it's, you know, distorted, right? But it's a way to bring melody in the voice to hip-hop in ways that rapping doesn't allow you access to that melody. Drake found a way in his natural voice to tap into that interiority without having to use the outer body experience. But I, I would argue the thing that has made Drake Drake is that Drake claimed this kind of interiority experience that has been articulated as an outer body experience via order to in other ways, he actually brought that back to the actual body. There's no question that Drake uses auto-tune, but Drake's biggest pop moments as a rapper slash singer were thanks to songs that featured him leaning into a more traditional use of auto-tune and singing. I got my eyes on you. You're everything that I see. I won't show high love and emotion. Whether we're talking about Hold On, We're Going Home, a song that, while subtly using autotune, was a straight-ahead R&B as it got at the time. Point being, if you'd never heard a Drake record before that song, you'd probably never guess he was a rapper. Even Hotline Bling, while very rap-sing-songy, didn't rely on autotune to sell itself to the masses. Meanwhile, songs like One Dance, Passion Fruit, and Signs made it clear that Drake's seemingly old-school, conservative, auto-tune approach wasn't a fluke. But it's also important to remember that Drake arrives on the scene after decades of rap artists challenging the notion of what a singing rapper could sound like. So Drake is able to sing and rap on a commercial smash like No Guidance with Chris Brown because of what 50 did because of what T-Pain and Kanye did. And if you know anything about Toronto's place in this particular conversation, because of the influence Chaos and Socrates had on Drake's early career. 
And a lot of this is something Drake himself acknowledged in a Rap Radar interview he did towards the end of 2019. You know, I, I'll always give credit where credit is due. So I, I credit all those people with, with, that, uh, with that movement. I think I was probably uh, the one that took it the furthest to go and make like full-blown R&B songs. Like to me, like making music for girls is just the waviest thing you could do. You know, out of all the things that people will say about me, I was never affected by the whole like, ah, oh, you know, this is soft or this is yeah. emotional or whatever. Cause I was just kind of like, I mean, I guess I just make music for like dusty guys and shit, <laughs> but like, that's just not really like what inspires me, you know? Drake couldn't exist 20 years ago. He is clearly a product of this moment when there's so much more of an inward look at black male interiority. And, you know, Drake is really the embodiment of that. Uh, I mean, to understand Drake, right, you listen to a Drake song, you're wondering, because it's the same theme. We're in love. I loved you. I broke up. You don't want to be my friend anymore. I mean, that's almost every Drake song. You know, that that is the simple Drake pattern. But again, it's about what am I feeling inside, right? And, and how do I express, you know, the kind of contradictions and trauma that I'm feeling internally, right? And how do I find a way to express it? But the way music journalist Brianna Younger sees it, Drake and his auto-tuned peers did something else worth considering. At the beginning of the conversation, like in the 80s, there was probably no version of the story where you could really set out and be like, I'm going to be a singer and a rapper. Labels, powers that be, wouldn't they wouldn't have known how to market it. They wouldn't know what to do with it. And so I think now we are seeing people like Tory Lanez, like Black, who feel like they don't have to choose. And often they'll be singing and rapping on the same albums and sometimes even on the same record. And I think that's a direct result of Future and Drake kind of making it this very normal thing. So there have been positives to come out of what this generation of rap singing auto-tune based artists are doing. Although Fonte has some legitimate concerns, particularly when it comes to how auto-tune and the rapper slash singer trend has affected the way artists are being categorized. And the Grammy goes to... L.A. stand-up, Igor Tyler, the creator! One of the, the craziest moments was Tyler winning Best Rap Album for Igor, which is an album that I love. You know, I think it's a marvelous piece of work, but I wouldn't call it a rap album. He spits a few verses here and there, but that's primarily a singing album. I mean, that album is that was like 70% vocals, bro. So now what we're, what we're faced with is how do you classify? And, and and some of it is rooted in racism, as all things in America certainly are. But, you know, if you have a, a rapper, someone who is known primarily as a rapper, and they make, say, a jazz album, that does not make it a rap album just because a rapper made it. So now what's happening is you're having problems with classification and, you know, these organizations like the Grammys and just, you know, they don't really know what to do with it. Brianna Younger has similar concerns. It behooves the labels, the marketers, it behooves the money <laughs> to push this idea that 
people are either doing both or to push this idea that there is a mono genre wherein everyone is essentially pulling from the same source because then you kind of get to rule both R&B and hip hop charts. You get to rule pop charts by nature of hip hop's power. It's kind of sinister in a way because it does make this tension wherein you see a lot of conversations, especially of late, that kind of position it like hip hop is sucking up all of the oxygen and R&B is just like floundering. And that is of course not true. And Brianna has a point, but within the context of the journey we've been on for this episode, the question for me is given everything, that so many generations of rap and R&B artists have gone through to break into the commercial mainstream, was it all worth it? You know, if you're someone who grew up on hip-hop and you love hip-hop, but you can also sing really well, there's now very clear lanes for that. The flip side of that also means that for people who don't fit into those constructs, they are not getting a lot of money to be who they are which goes back to the the hip-hop is dead, the R&B is dead conversations. Those are people who are trying to play another game that is becoming less and less lucrative. And then finally, when you get a flattening, you tend to lose history, and it, it tends to benefit the powers that be in general when people don't know history, and that will also always be a loss. Which brings us back to where we started this episode, with me envisioning what a hip-hop kid in 2020 might perceive to be the norm for mainstream rap today. This episode wasn't just for that imagined kid. It's also for my real two-year-old daughter, who'll inherit a rap and R&B legacy very different from mine and the one that exists today. And so whether her era embraces the traditional sensibilities of rap and R&B or come to embody a different amalgamation of black music, one that is maybe less obsessed with maintaining these rigid and toxic gender and masculinity rules, my hope is that she will always, always have some sense of its histories and how her generation got to wherever they ended up. We close with some final thoughts from rapper and singer Fonte, who, while critical of today's hip-hop artists throughout this podcast, ended our conversation with a story that reminded me why hip-hop is the most important music and culture of our time. You know, man, one of the most beautiful quotes I've ever heard was from Most Def, and uh, he said, you know, his mom told him a quote, and she was like, you know, the beautiful thing about hip-hop is that hip-hop was invented so that the sons could take care of the mothers that the fathers abandoned. And I was just like, dude, I mean, that's it. I mean, we could go and talk for hours just about the artistic merits of this and the auto-tune and the this and the that, but you're changing your family's bloodline with this. For you to be a kid you know, sitting in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina or Greensboro, North Carolina or Brooklyn, New York or wherever in the world and can literally just make something with software just out of your imagination and 
that could possibly be the thing to just totally change your life and the people around you. I mean, man, you can't you can't knock that. You can't you can't knock that. And you, you have to see the beauty in that. This podcast was produced by Anupa Mystery, Del Cowie, Josh Block, and me. Mixing and sound design by Andrew Norton. Judy Zayigu is our digital producer. Our consulting producers are Dalton Higgins and Passant Matar. Story editing by Chris Oak. And special thanks this episode to Misha Stanton. Original music composed by Boombox Sound. Transcription by Kelsey Cueva. Tanya Springer is our senior producer. And Arif Norani is our executive producer. I'm Ty Harper. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.